kids behind the bus time. From the NHRL studios in Norwalk, Connecticut, this is Behind the Bots, the podcast that brings you the stories of the builders behind the bots. I'm Chris. I'm Luke. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Kyle. And today on the podcast, our interview with Mammoth Captain Ricky Willems. We'll wrap up the show with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. If you like our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, CastBox, Player FM, and Podbean. You can follow us on Facebook at Behind the Bots and tell a friend. We really appreciate your support. Time for this week's Combat Robotics News. I have two news items for you today. First up, catch Live Robot Combat this weekend in Northern California, Utah, Tennessee, and Australia. In Northern California, they'll be fighting fairy weights and ant weights this Saturday at the Maid Studios Makerspace in Sacramento. If you're a fan of Sean Becker's 12-pounder minimizer, be sure to catch the original. He'll be at this competition running his antweight version of the robot called Thagomizer. In Utah, they're fighting antweights and beetleweights on Saturday in Ogden at an event called, and I really love this name, the Far, Far Northern Utah Biannual Robot Fight and Frenzy. In Tennessee, Backwoods Combat Robotics is holding Engineered for Destruction 10 at the Adventure Science Center in Nashville, where they'll be fighting antweights and beetleweights. And in Australia, the team behind Deathroll will be fighting antweights in Queensland at the Blackstone Battle Hall in Blackstone. And finally, some of NHRL's most recognizable builders took home top prizes at Motorama this past weekend. In the fairyweights and antweights, Gimli and Slim Pickens took home first place in their respective weight classes. In the Beatles, it was Lars Elliott and Jetlag, who went undefeated, winning six matches in a row and taking home first place. The 12s were dominated by NHRL veterans like Nightcrawler, Promheta, and Carmen, who took home second, third, and fourth place respectively. Winning the 12s was Jackpot team member Luke Grell and his bot Minor Threat 5, which went undefeated. And in the 30s, it was Matt Tompkins and his devastating shuffler Vert Nautilus, which won five matches in a row to take home first place. Now, Kyle, I want to pause here. Uh, You are, uh, out of the four of us, the only person who went to Motorama. I am still kicking myself for that. I love Motorama, but uh, I couldn't find a ride on Sunday. Uh, You were there on Sunday, a little bit closer than than us. Uh, What were your thoughts on the event? Um, So I, Motorama feels a little bit like home, right? It's one of the first uh, combat robotics events I've ever attended. Um, But it was so good to like, just go there and see everybody and say hi to everybody. Um, and the kids had a really nice time. You know, we, we got there right away and we immediately got food, sat down. Uh, then they immediately spilled ketchup all over themselves. And then, um, like while we were there, like Earl came up to film his kids, um, from the, the stands and I saw him and was like, all right, well, I'm going to go grab the kids ketchup while Earl is here. Cause like, it's nice to have somebody I know nearby. Um, and like, you know, it was just cool to have that. And then, um, Evan Arias was kind enough to invite us back to the pits to say hi to everybody. And so we got to walk around and say hello. And it was just, you know, seeing a bunch of NHRL folks and BattleBots folks. It was really nice. Um, The event itself was great. There were some awesome fights. The 12 pound division specifically was like super competitive and great. They did such a good job. Um, There was a lot of roofings. There was a lot of really powerful bots. And it's cool because 12s have not normally been like the fun thing to watch at Motorama, but I feel like uh, because we've really upped the game for the 12s at NHRL, um, quality of 12s overall has kind of gone up, right? So it was really cool to see that. 
Um, I gotta say though, like my one big complaint was the Beetleweights competition. Uh, the Beetleweights is kind of like a separate thing there. It's not run at the big box with the the rest of the Nurk stuff. It's run kind of separately over at another box. And um, the audience area for it this year was like cut off by like almost a third by a coffee and water station for the uh, pits for the the motocross people, which meant that like if you wanted to watch this as an audience member, there was like kind of a small eight foot viewing area that kind of opened outward. So everybody was just kind of crowding around this small space, um, standing room only. And it was, I mean, there are, it's always standing room only there, but this year was much less standing room. And uh, you just couldn't really see what was going on. You really couldn't hear um, the announcers that well. So it was really challenging. And it, it was so unfortunate because there were so many good fights going on in that box. I mean, there was like, you know, Lars was on an undefeated tear. And so everybody was so impressed with him and everybody was so happy with him. Um, you know, the, all of the shredded bro guys were there doing really great work. Remy de Guzman had, uh, his now kind of almost completely modded out version of a Peter bar kit, um, that he called gyration that he was just doing amazing work with all day. He's really done a lot with that kit bot to turn it into something really special. Um, and you know, all those stories just kind of got lost, right? Like the, there wasn't anybody there watching it except for the people that were in the pits. Um, and that's, you know, kind of a bummer about Motorama. It's not always about the fan experience. It's about the builder experience. Right, right. You know, it's it's funny. It's like, um, I am obsessed with Beatles now. <laughs> I find Beatles the most exciting, most interesting. Um, the stories in the Beatles, the builders in the Beatles are just, just absolutely fascinating to me. And that wasn't the case the first time I went to Motorama. It wasn't the case the first time I went to, you know, NHRL, I didn't really get it. And, you know, when you see the Beetle Box kind of off to its own little corner and um, it's hard to, to watch and people can't really get a good view into it, there is this sense at Motorama, at least, that Beatles are kind of the second class kind of uh, event. Yeah. And, you know, fairies and ants, obviously, um, are, are even kind of less, less emphasized. And I think they're they're missing something really cool there. I think that Beatles can be super interesting, and bigger is not necessarily better. Um, I get it. You know, you've got stadium stand, uh, stadium seating for the twelves and the thirties, and you need to have a larger bot, you know, larger box and larger bots in there so that um, people can physically see it. But I mean, even then, like when you're sitting up in those seats, like you can barely see into that box anyway. Um, yeah. So kind of like the I, I, I get what you're saying about the fan experience. I mean, really, the, the best seat in the house is uh, behind the ropes, like in the pits. And um, so many fans just kind of miss miss that, which uh, which is tough. Yep, absolutely. OK, uh, you know, got to ask the really important question. Did you get any Amish pretzels? Did you get the Amish Hot Pocket? Uh, we got Amish pretzels. We did not get an Amish Hot Pocket. Um, Evelyn oh, was for not. For shame, Kyle. Listen, I, you know. For shame, Kyle. It just didn't happen this time around. Um, but it. There was great food there all day. I it was a it's a four four hour drive one way to get to Harrisburg, eight hours round trip. Um, you know, tried to pitch Chris and Lindsay on leaving at five o'clock in the morning. You know, from the <laughs> Hudson Valley, 
my dominating kind of like thing, of course, besides, you know, seeing wonderful people like Lars and, and his family, uh, are, are those Amish hot pockets, you know? Uh, <laughs> so delicious. Luke, we both know that that four hour trip back becomes an eight hour trip back. Once you've had a couple of Amish hot pockets. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> That's true. That's what, true. uh, what was really funny. So I did watch the superlatives kind of after the fact. Cause, um, Oh, so uh, side note, there was no bouncy house there this year. Um, which is a big struggle when you're a parent of young kids, because like the, the bouncy house was how I was able to stay so long at the event last time we went. Um, because you know, the kids get restless. They can't sit and watch one thing for a long period of time. They, they've only got like an hour, hour and a half in them at, at sitting and watching something. And then you got to take them to run around. Um, but there was no like really good gross motor physical outlet for them there. So it was a lot of like, let's go on another walk. Let's go on another walk. Um, so that was cool. Cause we saw a lot of the other events that were going on there. Like, um, I, there's like an oval remote control racing series that I didn't even know about that we found a room for. And like, there was, um, we, we walked in on the demolition derby cars, which are like little tiny remote control tin covered demolition derby cars. Um, and we watched that from like up close, which I didn't even know that was an option that you could get up there and watch those up close. Um, and that was really cool. So we saw some neat stuff walking around, but it was also like kind of aimlessly wandering. So, um, we're just trying to get the kids to wear out a little bit of energy in a somewhat appropriate manner. Um, so next year, if I go, I found out that there is a playground like a block away. So if, uh, if needs be, I will just start taking them back and forth to that playground. But I watched the superlatives from the playground. This is what I was trying to get at. And a uh, cool thing that happened was they give out a year every year called, or an award every year called the try hard award. And the, the, it says, you know, the most try hard bot here hashed or like uh, in parentheses, go back to NHRL. <laughs> Um, right. And this year they gave it to our team that came from NHRL to compete. And I thought it was the cutest thing ever. Cause they oh. were like, Hey, these guys are from NHRL. Let's give them that award. And it was like, everybody laughed. It was really sweet. It was really cute, but it was great. And the, those guys were like, so proud to get their award. It was really cute. That's really funny. Um, yeah. You know, like I, 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 I do want to ask, I mean, because I feel like, um, with COVID and Motorama being skipped for one year. I mean, Motorama is, is once a year, obviously. Um, I feel like with NHRL running probably 12 or 15 events between, you know, like in that, that Motorama gap, um, there's been a huge amount of development, um, yeah. just cycles. And, you know, I, I do think that it is absolutely fair to say that there is an East Coast renaissance happening right now in combat robotics and your experience going to motorama say in 2019 2018 really different than your experience in 2023 and a lot of that is due to nhrl for sure you know back in 2018 2019 you just saw a lot more um chaotic matches kind of almost random matchups the quality of the robots was really different across the board and this year i mean on the live stream uh which i watched and I'm sure you in the audience uh, could see this a lot, just higher quality and more consistent quality. The fights were just better. Um, yeah. Did you, do you have thoughts like kind of on, on that, that development and the long icy arm of NHRL, you know, um, reaching into Motorama and, and, and the, the roster of bots? 
Uh, it was interesting to see because I'm in the the NERC group on Facebook where they kind of talk about um, this event and the Franklin event, which they do every year. And um, they were talking about like, should we allow these cleated wheels? Or are we going to want them tearing up our box floor? And I wanted to explain to them, like, the, the cleated wheels aren't that bad on the box floor, but, you know, they have to come to their own conclusions about these things, obviously. Um, but they eventually did decide they were going to allow it. And I love that they have to now have these big discussions about whether or not they will allow these things that are now, like, if you don't have cleated wheels on your robot at, what do they call them, plywood magnets on your robot at NHRL, you're at a disadvantage compared to a lot of the rest of the field. Um and so like there, everybody's like, oh, I don't know if we can have those or not. You know, let's talk about that. Is that it? Should that be allowed? Should that be OK? Eventually, they decided they're going to try it out for this year. They're going to say, yep, we'll try it this year. See if it works. If it doesn't, we won't allow people to do it again. Um, and they ended up replacing the plywood in the big box between um, events, like between Saturday and Sunday because of it, um, which I thought was like really smart. But yeah, the the whole discussion kind of was centered around the developments that have happened at NHRL. The hits were harder. A lot more destructive. Um, and, you know, a lot of the bots that do really well at NHRL were doing really, really well there. Um, but then again, I think a lot of those bots would have done well at Motorama before NHRL. It's just the the caliber and quality of those bots is so much more. You know what I mean? Like before it was like you go there and you see 15 silly bots and then a knockoff white, <laughs> which is like a marvel of engineering and an amazing piece of machinery. Um, and this time, like everything was pretty miraculous and pretty awesome. Except for, you know, the five things that Charles Kwan brought to be silly. <laughs> good, good. Um, well, all right. Speaking of Charles Kwan, good, good segue there, uh, Kyle. That, that's it for this week's news. I do want to uh, to get into our recap of episode seven of BattleBots, which ran on the Discovery Channel this past Thursday. Uh, we saw yet another dominant driving performance from Kevin Milchewski and Claw Viper, an emotional return to form for Tom Brewster and Monsoon, supersized weirdness from Mammoth and Starchild, the disemboweling by Copperhead, and one of the most electric main events of the season, Minotaur versus Cobalt. Your thoughts on last week's episode? I loved it. I mean, everything about that episode was great. It, it, this is such a good season, guys. It is. Re- it is really good. I uh, I enjoyed it. It was. It had. It had a little bit of everything. It had great driving. It had big hits. It had, like you said, Luke, a disemboweling. Um, Love to see Monsoon back and hitting hard. It's. It's just you know, uh, watching Claw Viper do the Claw Viper thing is. Uh, it's awesome. And you know what a weird matchup with Mammoth and Starchild and some Kung Fu fighting. It was. You know, uh, I, I would say it's. It's in the running for one of the most entertaining episodes of the season. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I am a uh, unapologetic Claw Viper stan, you know, I, I feel like uh, last season I, I was a fan um, this season, absolutely a fan. And um, I, I could, I could tell you that after Kevin's win over overhaul, he was just radiating. Um, Claw Viper was right next to Copperhead's um, pit area. And I spent a lot of time obviously with Chris and Lindsay over in the Copperhead pit area. And um you could just tell, like, Kevin was having the time of his life at BattleBots this season. I love how drivable that robot is. I love how fast and maneuverable it is. I mean, I, I, you know, they're they're not putting him up there yet with, like, kind of a Hypershock or a, or a Whiplash or a Witch Doctor in terms of driving, but they should. 
Claw Viper is super drivable. Kevin's a great driver and um, just stoked to see his performance this season. You know, the uh, mouth breathers, maybe a little less, Kyle. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, I love that. I had so much fun arguing with those people. I don't normally get into Facebook uh, arguments anymore, um, just in general to, you know, improve my quality of life. But I did have fun jumping in there and uh, defending Grabby Bot Nation and uh, making people feel a little bit silly about their views on life. Um, that was nice. Kyle, you, you are you are a mod on the, the BattleBots group on Facebook, uh, a job that I yes. do not envy at all. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're people, you know, uh, bagging on, on Claw Viper. There is so many people that loved that fight, right? Like, let's just go ahead and be clear. The vast majority of people were like super impressed with the driving. Um, most people were super impressed with Charles Guan's driving, right? Like, oh man, he had a slower bot like he really held his own and did very well against this much faster much more um hard-hitting opponent um but yeah there was one fella who was like wow what a waste of time nobody cares like let's watch two people spin metal really fast and slam into each other that's the only thing that really matters in this board everybody wants the destruction and he got absolutely gutted in the comment section. And um, it was really funny because he kept reporting every single person <laughs> who was telling him how wrong he was. Really? And every one of those reports came. Yeah. And every one of those reports came in. And I was like, eh, I'm denying that. Denying <laughs> that. Nope. Nope. That person's totally allowed to have that position. Yep. Totally fine. And uh, I, then I just jumped in with them all on, uh, you know, giving that guy what for, which was pretty fun. Uh, but yeah, no, like uh, you got to have that guy every now and again who's just like, the only thing people want to see is robots explode. And it's like, no, I get so happy when I see a robot like flip another robot into the air and slam them down. I think it's so much fun. Um, and that was a great fight. Those two drivers are so incredibly good at what they do. And that was really technical and really fun. I loved it. I'm so glad that uh, that they showcased it as well as they did. And I love Kenny Florian's commentary on those kinds of fights because you can tell he really loves that kind of fight as well. And he gets really into that action, which I thought was great. Uh, speaking of, you know, absolute total devastation. I do want to pause here and ask Chris and Lindsay about their experience box side with Copperhead, you know, like <laughs> that, that was like a, uh, NHRL style disemboweling, you know, like I felt like I was watching maybe a 12 pounder or a 30 pound match, you know, um, I guess, uh, how dare you? And, uh, what do you have to say for yourselves? <laughs> that whole fight was so, like it was so confusing from the get-go because um first you know we hit the buttons and we go and i think there's one of the teams i forget who had a false start so we were all like in the zone ready and then boom false start we have to like reset <laughs> so it kind of like took a little bit of you know you have to like reprogram your brain a little bit <clears throat> and then the match happened and then that whole sequence of events was very strange. And um, Luke, you know, we'll ha uh, we'll have to confirm like the timing of, of these. But uh, from my memory, as soon as that lipo smoke started, which was like more or less right after that hit, they removed the transmitter out of um, Luke's hands, um, you know, for safety reasons. But because of that, he wasn't even able to try and gyro or shake Copperhead off of the battery yeah. of um, of Triton. So the whole thing was just like, it was so quick and so weird and confusing. 
it was like <laughs> you know Copperhead was perfectly balanced, and I love that they that they managed to snap that slow motion shot. It of, was so of, good <laughs> of Triton just kind of like you know putt putt golfing that lipo underneath uh, Copperhead's chassis. Um, but like in in a scenario where you know Luke was on the sticks and able to gyro up, unless he was perfectly balanced on that thing he would have probably been able to gyro off but you know as soon as there's a fire in the box uh you know it's controllers down uh because now it becomes a safety issue so they had i don't think they had any other choice but to do the countdown uh for the double knockout but uh what what a crazy explosive match and you know again how do you how do you prepare yourself for even fighting a, a bot like triton it's just it's it's tombstone, but a bigger weapon and, you know, a heavier weapon. Um, it was, um, you know, it was, it, it was also a little bittersweet because I, we, you know, we, we absolutely love, uh, you know, the team. They're, they're wonderful people. And Brad and they, Shay are the best. They, they work really, really hard on their bots and they're very imaginative. And I always respect that in a builder and, you know, they, they basically swung for the fence with this design and it's ironically a, a design that has to swing for the fence. <laughs> um, but you know, what you, what you, uh, what you invest in, in weapon weight, you, um, you might have to make sacrifices in maneuverability. And you saw that, that kind of strafe, that Tokyo drift that Triton did right before, uh, <laughs> Copperhead landed that perfect shot. You know, it could have gone the other way if he um, if he managed to take that turn differently. Yeah, I mean, Triton was actually looking really good. I think the first few exchanges um, seemed pretty even between Copperhead and Triton, and even one of them sent Copperhead, you know, back towards the side of the wall. So mm-hmm. I would have loved to see that match go on a little bit longer, just because it would have been fun. Um, but yeah, man, it, it's, it's battle bots is fun, but then when you're there, you have to fight your friends and sometimes that's sad. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I caught, um, it's like, like summer camp where you have to kill each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but man, that was, that was a really fun match, but like, okay. So now we're two fights in, we've had what, like, Thirty-two seconds of like you know non-count out actually drive time, even if that much. Mm-hmm. Like you know they were all happening so fast, um, but uh, it was it was definitely a lot of fun. Shout out to the team, everyone on that team. Um, you know Luke and Chad and Micah uh, and and Jonathan. Like everyone is so great on that team, and man, it's it's fun to watch them succeed and. For us to be even a little part of it is crazy. And I hope people liked our uh, walkout, our tunnel entrance, because that was really fun. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask about that. Uh, what's the backstory of the weekend at Bernie's, you know, for your second fight? I think I think the backstory is just weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> yeah, that was like a VHS that, you know, I probably burned out like five VCRs at my dad's house, like when I was growing up. And, you know, why not? The uh, the arena, the BattleBots arena is like right across the street from a Las Vegas, you know, souvenir shop. So we just kind of had the idea of like, what if we went in there and like got as many, you know, stupid little props as we could and then put them all on Luke <laughs> and then have this little display. So um, 
that was that was fun. And you know, Luke has a he's built a little bit of a reputation as a party guy. So like we were <laughs> just like, hey, let's just lean into this and go full uh you know, uh full camp with it. And it was a lot of fun. And I'm I'm happy that the the team they're just great sports when it comes to doing fun things. And uh uh we Chris gave away the hat that uh Luke was wearing to a fan named Zim and he posted a picture of him wearing the beer cap <laughs> while watching the episode and uh shout out to Zim cuz that's awesome. Awesome. That is cool. All right. Uh, now, uh, this past week, we had 74 people send in predictions uh, for uh, for this week's fight card. And five people managed to call all seven fights correctly. Those five people were Sebastian Asado, Daniel Leslie Marshall, Eric Schrank, Komodo Builder, Miles Sim, and two-time predictions winner, Stephanie Spooner. So congratulations to all of you. The upset of the week seemed to be Minotaur versus Cobalt, with the majority of people predicting that it would go to Cobalt. Kyle, as an FYI, you did very well. You managed to call six out of seven fights correctly this week. Tripping up just with the first fight of the night, um, Gigabyte versus Bloodsport, calling it for Gigabyte, which, to be fair, was a very close fight indeed. Nothing to be ashamed about there. Um, all right, let's get into this week's predictions with our own Kyle Kroos, uh, starting with back-to-back fights for Team Wayachi. Kyle, are you ready? Oh, yeah, let's do it. All right, first fight of the night. Free shipping versus Hydra. Your thoughts here, Kyle? Um, so this is going to have to go to Hydra. Um, free shipping will be flying by air that day. Okay, uh, on over to our second Team Wayachi fight of the night, Huge versus Fusion. This is going to be such a good fight. Um, 90% of the time, I would say that this would very clearly go to Fusion just because of that very scary horizontal spinner on the back of them. Huge is a beast this year, so I'm going to go Huge. They're going to hit the top of Hydra. Uh, or sorry, hit the top of Fusion and make it go pop, and there's going to be lots of smoke and lots of fire and a lot of things not working. It's going to be great. I certainly hope so. All right, uh, we've got Old School versus the New Kids on the Block, Lockjaw versus Glitch. <laughs> oh, I love these kids from Glitch. I really do, but I think everybody's kind of got their number this year. Uh, this is going to go to Lockjaw and Donald Hudson. Okay. A battle of two hammers with Beta versus Shatter. Ooh, this one is so hard to call. Um, I, everyone loves to make fun of Beta, but obviously we've now seen that Beta does like to swing their hammer, um, and they can do it a lot. And uh, man, I'm gonna go dark horse on this one. I'm gonna say Beta's gonna win it. Whoa. Okay. Interesting. Wrong, but okay. Good. <laughs> uh, a little UK on Brazil action next with Quantum versus Black Dragon. Oh, this is going to be such a great fight that Black Dragon is going to win. <laughs> okay, good. Um, our first look at Terror Tops facing off against Craig Danby and Slamo. I'm going to have to give it to Terror Tops, but oh man, this is going to be so fun. I love these kids. That was one of my favorite interviews this year. Um, they're like so cool and they're like really got a good theory of the case behind their bot. So I'm rooting for them. Okay, nice. And finally, our main event, which seems cruel. It's a team-on-team event uh, here. Tantrum yeah. versus Blip. Your prediction. This is this is like, uh, let's just make seems reasonable robotics spend all their money is what this fight seems like to me. That seems unfair. Um, yeah, so I'm going to go with 
tantrum on that one. Interesting. Now, uh, in my head canon, I, I, I seem to recall Aaron Hill saying that he thought Blip could defeat Tantrum. Is that is that right to my? He does. Yeah. Yes, he, he did think that. Yes. But you think that it's actually yes. going to go the other way? I think that Tantrum has a really good ground game. I think that they are going to be able to more effectively do damage with their weapon. Um, then Blip is able to do damage to Tantrum. Tantrum is used to getting thrown, hmm. right? They are the sparring partner. Right. They they can get thrown all day and still work. Um, they've got, you know, floaty armor. Everything's absorbing all of the impact all the time. So I think it's going to end up going to Tantrum. I think it's going to be a super explosive main event. I hope to see like 13, 15, 18 flips in the air. Tantrum just making these huge impacts. I think it's going to be great. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a blast. Cannot wait. One, one of my favorite things about about watching this season of BattleBots is that I missed most of these fights. So I really honestly have no idea what happens. Um, so this one sounds like a lot of fun. And I can't wait to watch it with all of you on Thursday. So very cool. Um, all right. Well, if you think that you are smarter than a Kyle, you think you can defeat Kyle's predictions. Uh, not easy to do. Head on over to our Facebook page later today and send us your predictions. All right, now after the break, our interview with Ricky Williams. This week on the podcast, we have a very special returning guest, Mammoth Captain, NHRL announcer, DJ to the elderly, Ricky Willems. Ricky loves big weird bots. And Mammoth continues to wow audiences with its sheer size and unpredictable acrobatics in the box. Um, Mammoth is also a ver- the very first heavyweight combat robot that many of us here on the podcast ever saw in person many years ago at Motorama. Uh, it also has a very special place in our hearts. We love Mammoth. We love its captain even more. So welcome back to the show, Ricky. Hey, thanks. Glad to be back. Ricky, uh, we were just talking before we started recording. You are like the busiest man in the world right now. You're building seven mammoths, um, trying to change the entire structure of a tournament, and you're rewriting all of the safety rules and testing boxes all at the same time. So we'll try to move through this at a relatively fast clip uh, <laughs> because, you know, you only have two arms and um, that you have a lot of things that you've got to juggle. That's uh, true. There's a lot of things in the air, but we're... Uh soldiering on (laughs) all right so we're going to start off with some nhrl adjacent questions um so the first one comes from matt lantry who runs fallout at nhrl he wants to know how did you come up with the original concept for baby shoes all right so let's see baby shoes i sat back and said i wanted to do something a little bit uh different and something that was strange i wanted to build something out of spare parts that were sitting in um uh my grandfather's tool shed and i wanted to build something that reminded me of some of my favorite robots of you know uh, battle bots days of yore so uh, my two favorite robots back in the day were biohazard and nightmare and biohazard being a uh, lifting control robot and nightmare obviously being a giant spinning robot and i said well how can you make biohazard how can you make a lifting robot competitive in this day and age when there's so many vertical spinners and there's so many other things uh out there he's like well what if you didn't have to withdraw the arm every time you wanted to lift someone what if you just had another arm ready to go and you know ready to lift your opponent out of the arena and flip it on its back so that's it's kind of a two-armed spinning arm lifty thing and i was like well how can we get 
the rest of the robot out of the way so it doesn't get chewed up and destroyed while you're doing that lifting. It's like, well, you shape it like Nightmare. There you go. And that was kind of the uh, the the idea. I still have this weird little drawing on on some uh, note paper uh, floating around of the original idea. And uh, it was coming up. Uh, it was, I think it was fall, but it was coming up on barn battles um, in in Pennsylvania, and it's an open tabletop arena type uh, event, uh, sportsman esque. Um, so I, I got a bunch of stuff together from um, uh, from the local makerspace and some old tractor parts. The original like pulleys and belts and stuff were old tractor parts out of my grandfather's <laughs> shed. Um, threw them together and and um, it just had a really warm reaction. And I thought that it was worth exploring more. And and years later, here we are. I guess let's see that. I think that was twenty seventeen. So six years later. Um, this is this is what we've got. Yeah, six years later, you're building seven giant ones for a live show right now. Right, it's crazy. I, <laughs> it's one of those um, kind of things where if you just keep saying yes to things, you'll never know where you end up. <laughs> I love that. All right, so uh, small bot fan Marissa St. John writes. First off, thank you for being the awesome and hilarious person you are. Question. Do you still compete in the lower weight classes? And if so, why haven't you competed at any recent NHRL seasons? Is there a baby shoes successor? Maybe baby booties, baby moccasins. Um, is it time to issue? Well, it's t- time is definitely an issue. Um, yeah. There is a half completed uh, baby shoes successor uh, named Bloody Shoes <laughs> um, that that exists in pieces uh and <laughs> there's uh there's moccasin which uh, how that got out there i don't know but um the also exists in, in semi pieces but between live show work between um battlebots itself and between hosting at norwalk it's it's just a lot so i'd love to take uh some downtime to get those robots together and compete with them but um uh, yeah, well, that that'll happen when the downtime happens. In the meantime, um, that's that's just incredibly flattering introduction to your question. So thank you. Yeah, that was really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So Marissa is also taking it way back and wants to know what is the story of your hand injury. More importantly, how did you make that awesome cast cover slash brace? Ah, ah, well, there's a uh, you know a lot of rumors out there floating around about the hand. There's um. You know, uh, I was I was working as a katana sharpener at the time, um, <laughs> and you know, it it wasn't so much that it slipped as I was challenged mid sharpening, and you get excited. Uh, there was the freak thumb wrestling accident uh, that happened around that time, which you know, I I was going with my non dominant hand to give the other person a chance, <laughs> and it just I, I wasn't used to it. I didn't know my own strength, and I I broke broke it off at the uh at the joint um if you happen to know this uh jousting is is my home state of maryland's state sport along with lacrosse lacrosse and jousting are, are our state sports so uh i figured it was high time that i learned uh you know a little bit of state pride in that way i can't just wear the maryland flag underwear all the time i gotta gotta take it up a notch and uh it's not as easy as it looks <laughs> so 
which one of those is true is hard to say. Even I struggle to remember, um, you know, so many years in the future. But I, I do know I put a lot of work uh, into the cast. I was um, the, the cast I had on under it was was very unappealing looking, and as was my hand actually. Um, so that was all 3D printed on a on an Onyx printer um, at my old job at Stanley Black and Decker. Uh, except for the glowy light-up parts, which were 3D printed on a Form 2 3D printer. Uh, and the robot had already shipped out for BattleBots. Um, I was kind of there, like, well, not twiddling my thumbs, unfortunately, but close. I was waiting around for um, for flying out and said, well, i, I got to do something to jazz up this look. And, uh, and that's what came of it. And it was really frustrating actually, because I got out there and I'd put all this work into the world's largest fighting robot. Uh, and I'd be standing next to the robot and little kids would come up to me and, um, they'd just be like, Ooh, look at your hand. Ooh. <laughs> and I would answer <laughs> a bunch of questions, not about the six foot fighting robot standing behind me <laughs> but um about how i 3d printed the cool glowy cast so i never knew whether to take that as a compliment um or a <laughs> a lesson in in um focusing my audience's attention yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> all right so uh quick random question about nhrl from robot combat 114 from our discord server oh uh, what are some of your favorite bots slash fights you've seen while working as an NHRL announcer? Uh, let's see here. Um, I have a special place in my heart for, for 30 pound fights. Um, I've really liked to see Megatron fight. I like to see marathon fight. Um, and really just any of the competitive 30 pound fights are, are so gripping to me that sometimes I start to, uh, zone out of common of the commentary and just start to stare at the uh, the shiny machines beating each other up. Um, <laughs> on a smaller scale, I really do like um, some of the flame robots and some of the melty brains that we're getting. So uh, mixtape is obviously a fan favorite, uh, and it's it's one of my favorites as well. And it's one of the robots that uh, has me look at the three foot stack of of flamethrower equipment in my garage and and just longingly dream of the day i have some time to, to put it back into a robot you know that's um, not a that's not a problem most people have in their lives uh ricky a three-foot stack of flamethrower equipment just hanging out at their house yeah it's just lonely and calling my name and, and <laughs> wondering when it's going to get the attention it deserves and i'm over here saying no sorry i'm i'm too busy um with robots and race cars and, uh it's yeah, I, I don't know. Um, uh, and I, I really have liked to see uh, uh, see the Melty Brains coming out and, and playing a lot more lately, too. So I'm trying to think there's... Oh, the other thing I should say, too. I, I love any of the junk robot builds. Uh, anything that looks scrappy. Uh, and I mean scrappy both in terms of made of scrap and like scrappy, like it's just going to like bite your ankles if, it, if it's you know, taken apart. Yes. And, um, and so that's always a special joy to me when, when someone shows up with something that they, uh, you know, might have built out of something that they found in their grandparents shed. Like an old microwave and a lawnmower blade welded onto a Ryobi drill. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, total nonsense. That's so fun. I agree. 
Um, all right, so we have a straightforward but good question from Ben Cooper. This is regarding the mammoth design, right? We've got a few questions about that. Sure. Um, so why did you change the sweeper? And I'm going to go ahead and correct that to the yeeter uh, to plastic after the 2020 season. What was the thought process behind that switch? The trunk, Kyle. The trunk. Yes. <laughs> um, so... At the the moment that the old solid bar went away was the fight against Hypershock, uh, because that took a direct hit from Hypershock right in the face and just kind of exploded. And obviously, yeah. a lot of the field is uh, vertical spinners, and I knew we needed something that could go you know weapon to weapon over and over again with vertical spinners. Um, and we had shown up. Um, as a complete joke that year with the weapon that we used against Copperhead, which was UHMW. Um, and I shouldn't say it was a complete joke. It was an afterthought. I built it, you know, last minute from scrap we had laying around. It wasn't the plan to ever use it. We drew Copperhead as a matchup and he said, well, we know that the solid weapon is just going to get obliterated here. Um, why don't we give it a shot? And, you know, I'm in a couple of different um, group chats with with builders and uh, with my teammates and things. And we're all just like, you know, what if this works? What if this works? And afterwards, after the fight, I turned my phone back on. I looked and I just had like two dozen messages that says floppy weapon is meta. Floppy weapon is meta. And I, <laughs> it got lodged in of like, well, OK, compliant weapons have a future. So I'm. We tried to revise that uh, because the UHMW wasn't quite stiff enough to get us the the distance and everything. Um, and I think with the Tegra's weapon, we've got um, maybe we haven't perfected it yet, but we're making progress to what a compliant um, throwing weapon arm looks like. So <laughs> uh, we're we're trying to we keep trying new things on the team and and. Sometimes we strike the balance a little too uh, aggressive on the side of experimentation, but we keep figuring out new things that don't work. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of value in that. At least th I enjoy that. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, as long as it's a new thing, you know, it's not any fun to try something that, you know, doesn't work and, <laughs> and have it fail. Um, but yeah. you know, it has to might not work. It has to might not work. For it to be fun. I get it. I totally get it. And then every now and then, one of those might not works has to work. Yeah, totally. And now um, we're here. So I got a good question here from Jesse Mullen. Uh, what fault tore Mammoth's hub in the first match? Um, and is it a problem that might reoccur? So that's a very good question. Um, what happened in that first match is we got lodged against Valkyrie. And normally, Mammoth is sitting there, and it can only push against another robot as hard as Mammoth can push against the inertia of itself and the other robot. So if you mm. try and throw someone, um, hopefully Mammoth is going to push down against the ground, and the other robot is going to want to go up in the air. And less ideally, but also acceptably, Mammoth is going to push against the front of a robot, and we're going to go backwards, and the other robot is going to go backwards. But when the two robots got caught together, suddenly you go from having 250 pounds to push against to mm. having 
you know, thousands of pounds to push against. You know, the strength of our our front leg was holding Valkyrie in place. Uh, so that's a tremendous amount more force than we ever anticipated having. We never expected another robot to get lodged that hard against ours. Uh, and so as a, as a consequence, that hub, that big carbon fiber piece in the middle, was stressed well beyond what it was designed to, to handle. Um, and it got some big cracks in that exchange. Uh, and then when we tried to self-write later and got hooked on the wall, that was, that was all she wrote. Once you get a couple of cracks in carbon fiber, uh, the whole thing can kind of spontaneously disassemble itself, which is, is what happened. Um, it certainly could happen again. We did a lot to strengthen the the hub for future fights. So we actually had to remove some armor to make uh, make room for the fact that we put in big steel reinforcements between the bolts um, that hold the weapon together, so that even if it did crack, it would still be, you know, together. It would still it wouldn't fly apart. It would get a little wobbly, but. Um, but it would still function. So if you look closely in all the subsequent fights, there are these steel straps that are on the inside of that carbon fiber uh, assembly that are holding the thing together just in case there's there's cracking. Um, uh, with the hope that they won't pull apart entirely, even if it does crack. Uh, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we got similar questions about that from uh, Wes, who runs Death Punch. Uh, Calvin Eba, who you might know from Mad Catter and Lynx, um, they all wanted to know what broke on it. So thank you very much for explaining that. That is, uh, yeah, carbon fiber kind of zips open when it gets a little crack in it. Yeah, and we've talked about, um, you know, the pieces of carbon fiber we have are from our our sponsor, Common Fibers, and they do an incredible job building it. Um, and there was reinforcements this year that changed the failure point. You know, it used to be that it would crack right at the center and we put more reinforcements and that moved the failure point out outward mm. towards the towards the tips. Um, and it's a testament to how good the carbon fiber is. You know, where the reinforcements were designed in, there's not a scratch on them. They're perfect. Um, but but we didn't plan for getting our, you know, legs stuck in the mouth of Valkyrie and and that's that's what happened. Yeah. All right, so Repeat Robotics founder Peter Garnash wants to know, how did you happen upon the impossible to find material that is Tigris? Uh, let's see. Uh, we were turned on to Tigris by Team Huge. Um, and then we realized that it would really do a good job uh, addressing our compliant weapon material question. Um, it also does a wonderful job. We have these front legs on the robot that are um, uh, multi-layered UHMW and Tegris kind of sandwiches that we've experimented with in a way that we find works for Mammoth. Um, and yeah, once, once we found that that was a good option, we just kept experimenting with it and figured out the sizes and weights and um, uh, geometries that work for it. Um, there's a couple of manufacturers that make similar materials, but Tegris itself really seems to be um, ideal for a lot of teams' usage. Some of them are stronger, some of them are lighter, some of them are better in flex, some of them are better in stiffness. Um, and yeah, we've just kind of experimented enough that we found that that to be the right uh, thing. And then before this previous uh, season, 
uh, as we found with so many other things, there are all these supply chain shortages. And we found we couldn't buy taggers through the normal channels that we'd buy it from. So instead, we went out and found some companies that used Tegris, and we bought all of their like spare inventory, uh, all of their offcuts, all their drop cuts, all of their extra sheets that they hadn't used for previous jobs. Um, and as far as I know, we bought up like most of the Tegris that was available in the country <laughs> um, at that particular time. And there were a couple of companies that were trying to manufacture more to keep up with orders, but as far as like what was available on the shelves, we bought so much and then we resold it um, to, to several other teams um, and uh, kind of kept BattleBots in the, <laughs> in the Tegris <laughs> market uh, single-handedly. We, we should have charged a markup, uh, but um, uh, there's so many robots that were better for having had Tegris. And I think, with the state of robot combat as it is, the, the most important thing we want to see is robots that are performing as close to their peak as, as they can rather Amen than to that. rather than trying to uh make a, a buck off of everybody else who's already burning into their pockets. <laughs> All right. Well thank you so much. I'm gonna pass you off to my buddy Chris. Chris. Ricky. Hello. Are you uh are you writing a autobiography? Uh, is that one of the questions or is that one of your questions? I just hear somebody clicking a pen. Oh, wow. I did not know that was audible. Sorry. No, that's my. Uh-huh. Uh, you know what? What we don't realize is that uh, from sun up to sundown, Ricky is signing autographs for fans. <laughs> and every single time, just have it click. Boom. Click. Boom. <laughs> You gotta. Uh, it's fast enough, and I'm not even lying about this part. It's it's one of those four different color pens where you can click the different colors oh, down. Oh okay. You know what? Keep clicking. I don't blame you. <laughs> do you do the thing where you try to get two colors to go down at the same time? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah it never works. <laughs> not on this pen. Some of the other ones you can you can manage. Um, but yeah, no, I, I use this particular kind because if I sign too many autographs in a row with the um, same color, it overheats and uh, just dies. <laughs> so you switch blue to green to black to red so that you, know, you cycle through them and they get a little cool down time. Which color do you burn through first? Now I'm asking you the real questions. <laughs> uh, to, to be honest, this is the first time I've ever used this pen. So oh. um, I, I'll find out in some time between now and infinity i i don't know <laughs> i will say the clicking was a little like asmr -y. it was making my ears tingle <laughs> and now back to behind the bots well <laughs> ladies and gentlemen we're here again with the clicking clicking, <laughs> clicking, clicking. <laughs> if you'll just take a minute to respond as deeply as you want to just take a moment to relax let your eyes grow heavy. And here we see <laughs> the builder in his natural habitat. Oh, oh, you want the full Richard Attenborough experience is what I'm, I'm hearing. <laughs> he does the dance of anxiety to help expedite his robot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, let's, let's get, let's promptly move on. Okay. <laughs>
NHRL Rookie of the Year, Tom Farkas, who runs Positively Hysterical and First Drink of the Day, wants to know, Ricky, Mm. what is Mammoth made of? It looks fragile, but it handles and hits way better than expected. Well, let's see. The frame, all the tubular chassis is 4130 chromoly steel. Uh, Some people debate whether or not that counts as chromoly. It's... uh, that's what everyone calls it. So that's what we call it. Um, it's two inch tube in various thicknesses and different parts around the chassis. Um, some of them are bent to, or bent. Some of them are meant to bend. Some of them are meant to blow apart, depending on on the design uh, of that particular component. Uh, the boxes, you know, that whole wheel um, area that holds our drive system. Um, that's your typical AR four hundred and AR five hundred construction. Um, there's a lot of aluminum uh, mechanics, you know, that drive the um, uh, drive the weapon system and the drive system, uh, and then you've got Tegris and UHMW pretty much everywhere else, uh, except for that big weapon hub, the center of the big spinning arm, which is all um, custom-made carbon fiber parts. So uh, it's a real menagerie of materials, and it's way more technically advanced than I thought we'd ever get. Um, compared to the uh, pile of spare parts that was the original Mammoth. Mm. Uh, Tom also wants to know, when can we expect giant uh, googly eyes on Mammoth? Uh, You know, I found out the other day that some people don't even realize that Mammoth has eyes. Uh, I, you know, I thought that was super blatant and obvious. Um, Now, granted, they're not googly, of course. Um, I don't know how we get the Google into the eyeball, because the the eyeball is behind the frame rail. Um, I've been wanting to put a priority on making the eyes glow red, you know, whenever the weapon fires. But uh, I guess you could have a a pupil that sits within a dome on the eye, and then the thing spins, and the pupil always kind of like sits at the bottom or starts twirling and spinning like it's crazy that that would be kind of fun ricky this is my own question Mm -hmm. that i've always wondered yes how come the eyes on mammoth are are bloodshot uh it's it's angrier i i think no i think the real answer is we um spray painted those eyeballs on the original mammoth from um orlando maker fair and we just kind of spray painted them with spray paint freehand and they didn't really look like eyes. And we're like, what, how do you make an eye look more like an eyeball? It's like, well, if it's bloodshot, people are going to know it's an eye. (laughs) Um, But I think, I think there's been a little bit of a um, suspicion that uh, mammoth uh, might be indulging in some, some activities. And I think the, the real thing is, is that like the rest of the team, Mammoth doesn't get enough sleep. That was going to be my guess, honestly, was that, you know, Mammoth was kind of uh, running on E, but pulling it together for the fight and still making it work. Uh, describe my life, Lindsay, just. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, I think it's. Uh, we'll put it this way. Mammoth was frozen in a block of ice for how many thousand years? Like it's it, it's not happy to be woken up. <laughs> same mm-hmm. so goes the tale of the eyeballs <laughs> tom goes on to ask uh so the lifter arms and the fulcrum look like they're set to lift almost uh 
exactly 250 pounds. If it was if it was strapped to the ground, how much could the lifter arms actually lift? You know, it depends on the year. This year, we actually toned it back a lot. Um, last year, I think in the 2021 TV season, it could lift 9,000 pounds. Um, I think that's right. It's been a while. It might be, it, it's something around there, not seven to 9,000, something in that range. Um, now it's set to lift uh, a little less than 3,000, um, which lifting 3,000 is very different than being able to throw 250. You know, like there's a, a huge difference there. And there's a difference also in terms of how long it would be able to do that. The robot would burn up very quickly if you tried to have it bench press that much weight over and over and over again. You know, that's, that's its stall torque rather than its repetitive rating. Um, so realistically, we've never pushed the limits of, of how much it can lift in person. Um, uh, we know it can do a lot more than 250 pounds. Um, but in terms of where the thing mechanically just kind of breaks down, um, we only have theoretical limits to go off of. I mean, just 3,000 pounds even. It's it's nice to be able to go into a conversation and say, you know, uh, that, you know, as a team that you guys are giving more than 1,000%. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I like that phrasing. Uh, but, but realistically, you can't go in and just be able to lift 250 pounds if we want to throw an opponent. So, right. Um, uh, especially when we don't always have the right. The, the, the frustrating thing is, right, Mammoth is fully capable of throwing an opponent, um, you know, a good, uh, well, it depends on the angle you get, but you know, 12 to 15 feet. Um, the trouble is, is that you almost never get a perfect launch. Uh, and that's one of the things we've played with and have tried to figure out is how do we, you know, use forks better? How do we, uh, adjust the angle of the, and the tip on the weapon and that sort of thing so that we can get better hooks for better throws. Um, because you've seen mammoth, you know, do a full flip up in the air um the energy is there to have the robot do that to other robots uh it's just a question of um you know how do we best position ourselves and the opponent to be able to execute that mm. so uh tom's last question here segues segues into another question from andrew lynch and uh, i'll start with tom's question uh you know has there ever been any temptation to put a deep six style bar on mammoth just to see what would happen and uh, Andrew Lynch's question, uh, Andrew writes, when will you follow the examples of Kraken and Big Dill and free shipping and just add a spinner to the end of Mammoth's uh, trunk? Well, um, there is a lot of uh, uh, privileged information that could go into a response for that. Um, I'll, I'll start with the Deep Six weapon. Uh, Deep Mammoth has been something that we've considered off and on for a long time. Uh, it's something that we can pull off if we want to do. It's just a question of who do we use it against. Uh, knowing that Mammoth probably won't survive more than one hit um, against an opponent if we do that. Um, so it's it's a question of what robot do we want to fight uh, where we think we could destroy them in one hit, and that's worth the trade-off. Uh, so, you know, maybe you'll see it one day, maybe you won't. We'll, we'll have to find out. 
Um, as for other robots, or for uh, for you know uh, hammer saw kind of approaches and things, uh, that's also something that you know obviously has come up as a topic of conversation and um, uh, we've explored. But it's it's just a question of when is that the best use of a mammoth shaped robot, um, and what opponents do we want to use, and uh, what what opponents would we want to use that against? Um, so, you know, maybe you'll see it one day, maybe you won't. Just depends on the circumstances that we find ourselves in. All right. Speaking of design uh, diversity, um, we have a question from Francois Froll Pelsler, who writes, I'd love to see a bot like yours that is really different. What changes to battle bots would make, uh, would you make to increase diversity in bot design? Uh, let's see here. I think... I think the shelf probably needs to get uh, reimagined, not necessarily uh, removed, but but reimagined either as a ring out box or uh, a smaller shelf pushed, put in the corners, you know, those kind of things that you hear. Um, the sneeze guards, um, as they're called, the, the Lexan panels around the outside of the arena that prevent ring outs uh, need to be removed. Uh, I think we probably also want to have a few arena hazards that are a little more um, potent. Uh, I think all of those things give you a chance to have um, robots that aren't as um, focused on, you know, just being uh, pure attack, vertical spinner, kinetic energy weapons. Um, other than that. Arena size and layout makes a big difference. So uh, Mammoth, a lot of people don't realize how fast Mammoth is. Mammoth has, for the last few years, been sometimes the fastest, but usually one of the fastest robots at BattleBots. But because we're enormous, it's very hard to get up to full speed within the arena. And I'm not saying we need a bigger arena or a smaller arena, but you really shake up things when you have different traits to... um, uh, the size and layout and that sort of thing, which is one of the reasons I mentioned the shelf. Um, yeah, I think those are those are the main things that I would do to increase diversity. Um, oh, <laughs> the other main thing is have more heavyweight events. If, uh, if you can only experiment with things in the heavyweight um, size range uh, at a, one or two events per year, then it gets really hard to experiment with what works on that scale. Uh, and some things transfer from from small robots up to large robots, and some things don't. Um, a good example of that is is Starchild, and you know we've uh, the first two matches. Uh, Brandon was dialing in Starchild, and uh, one of them, of course, being against us. Um, and those are fights that a smaller Starchild would have, um, uh, I won't say breezed through, but really would have had a, a great shot at. And it's just a question of learning how to have a robot like that behave on a 250-pound scale. And you can't do that until you build it and fight it. So um, I think at this point, the safest thing you can do to build a competitive 250-pound robot is build a vertical spinner. And until you have more places to experiment that are lower stakes than BattleBots, it's hard to see the diversity that we all want to see. Perfect answer. 
All right. Uh, I have a question here from Alex Pick, who runs Zane at NHRL. Mm. Alex mm. wants to know, Mammoth is an unconventional everywhere. Are Mammoth's forks just for corralling, or do you have the option to use them for a ground game? Uh, so this this is a interesting question, right? Because there's Mammoth's front legs, um, and then there are Mammoth's forks. Um, so we didn't run, we run forks sometimes, sometimes we don't. Uh, but we also have those two giant front legs that stick out on either side. Um, the front legs are never really intended to be ground game. The forks, on the other hand, that come out from the center of the robot and go forward, uh, those are ground game. Um, you haven't seen any in the 2022 20, um, season or 2023, whichever, our world championship that we're currently in. Uh, we will use them in later fights, um, and they are intended to to play ground game, and they are a important part of how we go against robots that have a ground game that we want to be able to lift and, and throw. All right, I got a, a set of questions here. The first one, it's a great question from Ian Miller, who runs Quicksand at NHRL. Uh, uh, Ian asks, would you make Mammoth bigger if they let you? And this ties into Bob, who runs Tank and Spank at NHRL. Uh, also has a, a size-related question. Is Mammoth actually right up to the size limit for BattleBots? And if so, how big could Mammoth get while maintaining enough strength in its frame to withstand hits from big spinners? Uh, let's see here. So I guess the, the we know now how big a Mammoth is too big, and um, it's we hit the sweet spot by accident that first year at the six-foot level. Um, we went the next year and made the robot six foot four and everything just was kind of coming apart at the seams. The, the metal was overly stressed. The tube lengths were long. So the, the, um, uh, mechanical advantage that hits had would do more damage. Uh, so that six foot level is like right about as big as we can go with the limits of the material that we're using right now. And the, at least the, with their current approach to design. Um, if we use thicker, you know, tubing and stuff like that, maybe we could get away with it, but that necessitates a higher weight limit. Um, I think more or less the unofficial, um, size limit for battle bots is don't be bigger than mammoth. So, uh, I'm sure we could show up with something that was a little larger if we wanted to, but, uh, uh we're, we're right up against the mechanical and and like physical limits of how big we can make the robot with its current design and materials yeah until we see dark side 250 sure sure well that's that's a different different design and different materials <laughs> so yeah, different philosophy too I guess. Uh, yeah <laughs> yeah this Different work ethic, different uh, <laughs> levels of intoxication mm -hmm. anyway so let's go on to um a question here from uh steven eager it's actually a two-parter uh before the new season, did you expect any challenges knowing that some of your old team would be leaving to compete with Doomba? And how do you think Mammoth would do in a fight against Doomba? Um, I don't think so. I think um, we do share a team member uh, with Doomba. Uh, Lou helps out on both teams. Um, uh, Bryce and Liz went off to, to work on Doomba because they had a, a very different... Um, thing that they want to pursue and we we talked at one point about having doomba be a uh a mammoth 
a team mammoth offshoot or that kind of thing. But um, to get the vibe right of uh, for both teams, it, it made more sense for that to be an independent venture. So um, I, I think we brought in some really great new talent this year that worked out really, really well. So um, uh, Ellie was fantastic. Uh, and uh, Zoe and Cody were both, were both excellent. And I don't think we hurt for, you know, construction talent and that sort of thing. Uh, I, I was really incredibly, <laughs> excuse me, incredibly pleased and impressed with how the team did this year in terms of, uh, you know, effort and spirit and, and execution. So uh, thankfully we weren't on the back foot there uh, for how we do. I mean, I, I think we would probably clean up pretty well, which is ironic when, you know, you're fighting a, a Roomba. Um, I, you know, taking the, the chainsaw off the top with a nice quick swipe would be a lot of fun. Um, and their robot is surrounded in UHMW, which is just tons of fun for our robot to, to hook into and, and rip apart and flip over. So, uh, I, I think we do pretty well. Um, it's just a question of if the robot combat guides make that match up or not. I said guides. I meant gods, I think. <laughs> God, I mean, in a way, they're guiding us. They're showing us the way. Uh, Ryder Liangle wants to know, does Mammoth ever hang out with Doomba? And if they do, what kind of shenanigans and antics do they get up to? Uh, you know, there's been um, offers of shenanigans to go happen. We do happen to have uh, two robots in pretty close uh, proximity, but um, I think Team Mammoth has been pretty exhausted since filming, so um, the the number of shenanigans has been limited by uh, the hours of sleep that we're getting or or not getting. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, both robots have eyes, so you you'd think that they'd have that endearing quality of, of getting up to some kind of hijinks or another. But we'll find out one day, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Ryder goes on to ask, uh, we see Mammoth do a gymnastics routine when it fights big-wheeled bots like Huge and Star Child. Are there any uh, bots that Mammoth can just randomly flip in the air like that against? Um, oh, I, robots that would cause Mammoth to spontaneously flip. Perhaps is is, I mean, Valkyrie caused us to spontaneously flip yeah, as well. True. So um, yeah, uh, that it can happen at any time. It's just a question of when we get a bad hook um, and the geometry doesn't work quite right. The other thing that can happen is our front legs can get damaged. Um, mm. If our front legs are damaged, then we no longer have the right geometry and we just kind of fall forward, and it's not ideal. Ryder's last question is, uh, so you've learned firsthand at NHRL how dangerous Magic Ninja Dust is in battles for grip. Has Mammoth ever tried to sneak some into the battle box on its lifters? Oh, well, I mean, you notice that the uh, the tips on the uh, weapon sometimes are, are white rather than, than steel. Of course, that's the Magic Ninja Dust at play. Uh, the Titanium Tootsies as well have a, a certain white uh, gleam to them. And for added grip in the box. No, uh, we've never tried it. We should, um, but yeah, uh, 
Ryder, you know, you know very well that performance enhancement dust is is rule number one outlawed in BattleBots. Well, you know, there's this whole inhalation hazard to it. Um, you know, Luke Luke is never going to recover physically from that cloud of magic ninja <laughs> dust. That's why he's, he's not here on the the podcast he's not today. On the right now, because he, he's in an iron lung six days a week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's. It's a really unfortunate fate to befall, but you know, <laughs> when, well, you, it, when you play with white fire, uh, there's nothing's fair in, in love and thumb wars. And nope. <laughs> <laughs> Battlebot superfan Alexander Archer wants to know, it was mentioned in an earlier episode that you considered retiring mammoth. Why the change of heart? So that's been played up quite a bit. Um, I realistically we considered retiring mammoth in the same way. I think every team considers uh, or reconsiders its design at the beginning of the year. Last year was a really hard year for the team. Um, we didn't do as well. The build was just rushed and, and tough. And there were just a whole lot of things on a lot of the team members plates. And it was, it was brutal all around. So it wasn't so much a mammoth has, uh played its hand as much as like you know do we have a uh another year of this in us to experiment with this and and see what's uh what's possible and i can't speak for the whole team here but for me personally it was a matter of i know this design has more left in it i know there's more to explore um and i know it's something that people want to see come back and that's kind of a uh, a magic combination of potential, and I didn't, I didn't want to see that uh, fizzle. Um, we have talked, you know, now that Mammoth is going to be um, participating in the Destructathon. Uh, you know, is it time to not sunset Mammoth, but you know, bring another robot design into the fold? Maybe show up with a couple of different options. Uh, is that something we want to do? Uh, and and we'll see. It depends on when the next season gets announced and how much time and um you know uh how much time and bandwidth uh i have and the rest of the team has alex's last question is how much of the star child fight reminded you of the huge fight from season five uh you know I, we went into the the star child fight and i said to the team i gave the team the option i said we could repeat the huge fight almost exactly. One of the things that happened in the huge fight that made it so entertaining is we had pure UHMW legs instead of the UHMW Tegra sandwich. So they were very bendy, and that's why we flipped so much. Um, and we could have done that for the Star Child fight. If we wanted to go in there and just do acrobatics the entire time, we could have. Um, but we also wanted to win. We knew a lot more about how fighting a big wheel robot like Star Child. Um, worked and how to do it and i wanted to show off that mammoth was um i don't want to say invincible but you know a bad matchup unfortunately for star child that we were i think jonathan watched the fight jonathan from huge watched it and we were having a conversation later and he just kind of interjected and he goes oh by the way mammoth is big wheel nightmare fuel now just and then we went right back right back to the conversation and i i knew that was going to be the case and i wanted to show it off so um it was less 
huge like than I feared. Because <laughs> I didn't want to go into that fight just doing backflips the whole time. I wanted to throw the robot around, lift the opponent, and and we succeeded in that. So it was just enough huge um, vibe to be entertaining, but um, low enough that we could still really control the match and, and have a good fight. All right, Ricky, I'm going to hand you on for some more hypotheticals with the uh, with the lovely Lindsay Bear. Hello, Ricky. Hi, Lindsay. Hi. So I'm going to preface this by saying I know you're a very busy person. So feel free to be as economical with your answers as you feel, because, uh, you know. It's a very polite way to say I'm long-winded. No, no, no. By all means. You've also said that you're tired and out of time about 400 times during this interview, Ricky. Oh, yep. I'll also say that we were uh, greedy before this call, and we did uh, take a lot of uh, Ricky's time before recording. So uh, that's on us. That's on us. The 500 autographs that he was signing was actually for us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, no, obviously, you know, nothing brings us joy uh, like listening to you uh, talk about things. And I truly mean that. But I also know that you're tired. So and you've got welding to do. Anyway, let me get to the questions because now I'm just stalling. Um, Zasa, too, has a hypothetical. Do you think Walker Mammoth could beat Chomp? Uh, yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> well, you don't have to be that economical. <laughs> <with> your words. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I would love an excuse to get uh, Walker Mammoth uh, into the arena, and uh, uh, more importantly, uh, some of the Walker. Uh, descendants of the mammoth concept that we've been kicking around that would be i i'm just imagining an absolute behemoth and i really 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 would love to see that one day uh yeah it's uh you know there's cad or a, a render floating around out there uh that i did strictly as a um as a joke uh for april fools actually sorry to, <laughs> to reveal to people uh but that said, there is actual Mammoth Walker um, CAD that exists. And uh, uh, it's one of those things where if I if we had two years between a season and not one, yeah, um, you know, it would be there. But it's, it's a lot of extra work. I mean, effectively, you're engineering by the pound. So it's a 500 pound robot is just doing your 250 pound robot twice. Um, in some ways oh it's not totally true um but when you're doing a walker it certainly is all right so um we have some questions from matt hedger and i think maybe some others about you know what you might be envis envisioning to build next so uh my girlfriend doesn't like robots host matt hedger wants to know you said before battlebot 7 that you had considered scrapping mammoth and entering something new uh, and i think you've even mentioned it on this uh chat a few times would you be willing to reveal what that new something would be and how different would it be to Mammoth? Um, well, we touched on just a little bit ago. I mean, one of the things I'd really like to do is this um, this Walker design that has a little bit of the Mammoth spirit behind it, um, but it's a very different um, robot at the same time. So that's one of the options. There's been a few... Uh, shall we say more um, esoteric ideas thrown around? 
and they're a little more experimental. I'd love to bring them in a uh, in the sense of showing up for exhibition fights and trying new ideas in that kind of way. Um, and I think all of those are better left uh, unsaid until uh, such a time may or may not come about that we have time to build them. I think all of those would be a a sideline of, well, we've got two extra weeks and a bunch of spare parts from last year's revision of Mammoth that we don't have a use for. What are we going to do with it? Well, we're going to build Mr. Mustache or whatever Ooh. robot. Um, forget you heard that. Um, <laughs> that was... That was that was one uh, working title for a while. So, yeah, there you go. Wow, very conveniently, uh, my audio cut out for about the last seven seconds. So anything after Mr. Mustache, where I'm sure you explained in detail what the design would be, I didn't hear. Don't uh, worry about it. So it'll be a mystery. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sa- uh, Sean Peterson wants to know, who would you pick for your opponents if you could pick your own four matches for season eight? Ooh, that is a good question. Let's see here. I'm going to take a look at the uh, the list here because I could never... You, know, you always forget the obvious one. Oh, wow. The... All right. Who would be the most fun? You know, I had always wanted to fight Valkyrie, and I'd always wanted to fight Kraken. Uh, of course, Kraken is a little different this year than how I wanted to fight, so... You know, classic Kraken would have been a lot of fun. Uh, Claw Viper also would have been a lot of fun. Um, free shipping would be a lot of fun. Love a rematch against Gruff. Um, There's a lot of rematches, actually, I would enjoy quite a bit, I think. But um, we keep almost fighting Rusty. Aww. And I know fighting Rusty is like a terrible idea because there's no winning fighting Rusty. But at this point, it's just kind of a, um, it's kind of a tease. <laughs> um, also, I've really wanted to fight Sawblaze for a long time. I would um, love to see that. Because, you know, they, they chopped apart a bicycle tube. Let's see if they can chop apart a mammoth tube. Um, so I, I think those are probably the, the go-to ones I've got. That would be great. Um, Michael Wise has a good retrospective question. What is your favorite win that you've had and your favorite loss that you've had with Mammoth? Um, backing up a second, the other one I forgot, Quantum. I would love to fight Quantum. Ooh, that would be fun. Um, that said, going back, favorite win we've had... Um, it's got to be either... Oh man, it's tough. It's between Huge, Star Child, and Copperhead. And I think it's Copperhead. Um we went in with such expectations of of abject failure and it just went so much better. Uh <laughs> and um I remember right after the fight, uh Courtney and our team showed up and she was getting like an Uber back from somewhere or another. And she like ran in and tackled me and I about died um, <laughs> because she was like full long sprint. And it was only because I like caught it out of the corner of my eye and braced myself that I just didn't hit the glass. But that's um, so sweet. As for the favorite loss, um, keeping in mind that 
um, we get to fight robots that aren't necessarily part of the official tournament, uh, you all haven't gotten to see our favorite loss yet. Oh, all right. All right. Well, I will not press you any further on that. Uh, we have some random questions here to kind of round out the interview. Mm -hmm. Um, first from Ryan Hunter, who runs pick control at NHRL. Uh, he has some NHRL related questions for you. And this one is my favorite. Ricky, can you tell us more about your weird job history? How long is your resume? And do you have any more odd bird stories? Oh, dear. That's that's a lot of question in one thing. I will say that my resume is about four pages long. And when I apply to a new job, I just delete three quarters of it. <laughs> uh, let's you know, I have a really good story, actually. I, I was interviewing. Um, oh, no, I can't tell that story. That, that, that was that's under NDA. Um, oh, no. Eh, crud. I, I hate to I hate to dangle that in front of you and then not do it. But um, cool. I I got to. Crud, crud. How do I how do I get the punchline of the story out? Um, no, there's come up and ask me weird stories about um, um, my interview history in, in person sometime and I'll I'll wind your yarn. Um, let's see. What are some other interesting stories um, or interesting jobs I've had? Um, the used car salesman. I was a rickshaw really? driver. Um, I, I don't know. And I was like 10, I went around doing computer networking uh, as a small engine mechanic. <laughs> um like you're an uh, engine mechanic when you were small or you I was a small, small engine mechanic, yeah. <laughs> um there I don't know. I I tried to to get a copyright on the business name DreamWorks, only to find out that some, <gasps> you know, film company already had it. Lame. Like, I know. Um let's see, there's there's other stuff in there. I'm trying to. It's a varied history. Um, and then bird stories. <sighs> Which bird stories did I tell on air? Because I, I mean, we had a very evil bird uh, when I was growing up. And I'm not sure if those were the stories I was telling or not. Well, I remember, I, I believe it was Allie and Luke who were sharing bird stories. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure. I might have missed it if you if you shared your own. Well, I, I mean, I've certainly got some. Um, <laughs> of course, but you do. <laughs> yeah, I think we had a bird. We had several birds, and we had one that was just in love with guinea pigs and would chew through steel padlocks to be with be with the ones that they loved. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't. Yeah, you know, obviously, it didn't happen overnight, but they'd just like grind on it, and eventually, it would get um, torn through. And the thing was just like devilishly smart and and horrendously vengeful if you were to <laughs> um uh, arouse its ire it would um really it pierced a lot of ears um involuntarily um it was a it was a real creature and it was just coming around um to you know humanity when um it it met an untimely demise and 
ever since we were just like, what could that bird have become? Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. There's a lot of other, I'm trying to think of like wild birds that I've met that I've had weird interactions with. Oh, I've got a photo diary of when I was stuck in Vegas, this pigeon that had mange and it lost <laughs> most of its feathers. It showed up day after day as I ate at uh, Chipotle outside. And we just kind of had this rapport that we developed. Um, I named it after a, a Latin um, demon um, <laughs> that had, you know, was once famous. And um, I was talking to a couple of friends and one, one of them I hadn't known very long. And I was sending pictures of this bird only to find out they had a death, like a, a huge fear of birds. And I felt terrible after the wow. fact. I'm sending this like horrifying looking creature. Even if you love birds, this this was not a winner. You know, this, there was no, there was no beauty pageant um, that could be won by this creature, uh, other than you know its heart. Um, it was a gentle, beautiful soul, but uh, <laughs> with mange. Yeah, it was. It, it had spent a couple too many nights on the strip. Um, is all I can say. I mean, relatable. I'm sure to many people in Vegas. Um, man, Ricky, you know. It, who needs NHRL? We can have our own weird time of the night right here on Behind the Bots. We just cracked 10 p.m. It's it's the weird part of the night's right around the corner. Wait, you're right. This is about when it would begin. So yeah. on brand. The crazy eyes start happening and the <laughs> Yeah. Um, so we have a question from Matt Lantry who runs Fallout at NHRL. Ricky, what's your favorite dog and why is it Jackson? Oh boy. So I, I love Jackson, but being that there is a separate smaller version of Jackson in the room with me, um, I, I can't say that Jackson is the favorite. We've, we've got Duke who is our official team shop dog. Uh, Jackson is a team member. You know, he's, he's a contributor to the team. He gets a Jersey. Duke uh, is a shop dog and he gets to hang out and just, you know, brighten all of our days because Jackson is busy working and you can't, you know, give him affection while he's on the clock. So um, Jackson pulling his weight on the team, Duke, mm -hmm. just a freeloader. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. But yeah. we'll we'll let him freeload any day of the week. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, so we've got a good philosophical question from NHRL's own resident statistician, Gil. What could combat robotics learn from F1 and what could F1 learn from combat robotics? Um, I, I stay up at night sometimes fearing what combat robotics can learn from F1. <laughs> uh, I enjoy um, Formula One. I think racing in general is, is a great passion project. Um, but one of the things that I really like about the progression that combat robots has taken is that they have maintained a spirit of competition that is accessible to um to a much broader range of people and i'm not going to say that combat robotics is accessible to everyone because it is still a very privileged um pastime that we we enjoy but at the same time it's also not something that only exists for you know ultra wealthy people to enjoy uh and i think the biggest thing that we can learn from f1 in terms of advancing uh, combat robotics is uh, a lesson on making sure that it stays accessible, um, making sure that um, there is still a pathway to being competitive and being um, uh, notable and 
uh, making a name for yourself in the robotics world uh, without having to start go-kart racing when you're four years old and go through, you know, driving clinic after driving clinic and licensing program and stuff just to, uh, you know, compete on a very high and very expensive stage. So um, not that there's, you know, not that that is a bad thing that exists in other ranges, but I, I think trying to avoid that for combat robots is a, is a noble goal. So that's, that's probably where I'd say um, uh, we could learn from F1 in a little bit of a what not to do kind of way. Um, as for what they could learn from us, I, I think you could take the easy route and say it's just the, the opposite of that. Um, but I think the spirit of innovation um, that we are able to to stick with in the um, combat robotics world, uh, granted, it's it's much easier for us to do it because of our relative size, um, is is something we'd love to see. I mean, there used to be a lot more wild and interesting um, design choices in the Formula One world, and they haven't uh, they haven't done that quite as much in the last. Uh, you know, 10 years or so, at least not as often, I should say, you know, there's, there's always teams that kind of push the envelope from a technical perspective, but uh, it's the exception rather than the rule. So. Great answer. Um, all right. So Nelly, the Ellie bot captain, Sarah Malian writes, get Ricky to tell you about the gluttonous recipe he shared with me. You know, I saw that question listed online and I thought she wrote glutinous and either way it works. <laughs> Um, I almost said glutinous and then I thought maybe it's gluttonous. It is. I think it is gluttonous, but um, no, we in, in college um, I like to take credit for um, inventing fried peanut butter, um, which isn't really. Yeah. So what we would do or what I would do, I should say is you would take uh, a couple of jars of peanut butter and you'd sweeten it with, uh, with a bunch of sugar. So you can make kind of a dough. Um, and then you'd freeze it and then you'd put another layer around that. And then I'd make up a special batch of some, some family recipe funnel cake batter. And I'd wrap it in that and then freeze it again and then put another layer on top of that. And there's powdered sugar in between these layers. So they say kind of like flaky and delicious separately. Um, and then you deep fry the whole thing, um, in Crisco. And you take it out when it starts to to uh brown a little bit and you put it on the table um and then you add powdered sugar and chocolate syrup and whipped cream on top of that and um that served granted these are you know not industrial size but these are Costco family tubs of peanut butter that you're using wow um and i think it served six of us uh you know this one we made this several times to varying degrees of success. Sometimes it was incredible. Sometimes it was just a mistake. <laughs> and uh, I think I did the math later that it was between 3,500 and 6,000 calories a serving. <laughs> um, because it was, I mean, you take a jar of peanut butter, like it, it ended up being like two thirds of a jar of peanut butter per serving per person. And then you saturate that with sugar and then you cover it in dough and then you deep fry it. So there's like a cup of Crisco like oil injected into it and then you cover it with sugar and then you cover it with chocolate syrup and whipped cream. So it was just, 
you know, it's like eating pure calories. It was like in high in protein. Yeah. Yeah. There was definitely some health in there. (laughs) It was not net positive by any (laughs) means, but there was, there was at least a health um, present. (laughs) A health. I love it. Yes. Yes. Uh, Speaking of food, Mammoth team member Brandon Bennett Young. Hey, you might know him. Uh, He wants to know, Ricky, where are some good places to eat in Baltimore after a long build session? Asking on behalf of our future team. Mm, Well, um, Hershey's is delicious and they are right down the street uh, and they have wonderful outdoor seating for those um, that are inclined to enjoy restaurants. Uh, there's, uh, quite a few other places. We've got, um, mothers down the street. I actually, I did a little research when I moved shops into the shop that we're in right now. And I was talking to a friend and I said something to the effect of, you know, there must be 50 places within a half mile of here, um, to eat. And I said, you know, that, that sounds ridiculous. And I hate to say things off the top of my head that are just, you know, gross exaggerations uh because this particular um place is is kind of up against the river a little bit so it's really only a semicircle of places to go because it's water and train tracks in the other direction so uh i went on yelp and i put a half mile radius because i figured that's about as far as anyone wants to walk it's 167 places to eat wow it, yeah uh, like the and and yeah um none of them are cheap (laughs) (laughs) no it's it's not bad it's um i think our our team favorite or i shouldn't say our team favorite i think courtney and i's favorite is is hirsch's and um uh is a delicious like um steamed bun asian food sandwich place it's delicious um Oh, there's a place down the street that I've gotten takeout from a couple times called um, Bird, B-R-D. And they sell chicken fingers. And each chicken finger is like an entire chicken breast. Wow. Yeah. So I, I went in there and paid $11. I was like, that's a lot for fries and, and two chicken fingers. And they gave me the thing and like my arm fell off with how <laughs> heavy it is. And it's like two entire chicken breasts and a pound of fries. This is and delicious. So Well, now I'm hungry. Yeah, me too. Well, before we wrap this up, we have a couple questions from Horizon team member Mary Catherine Carr, who we always end on her thought-provoking questions. Now, this one she's been waiting to ask for a long time. I think she sent it as a super chat in uh, at the last NHRL, but I must have missed it. So we're finally going to get to the answer. What is your favorite Pokemon? Oh, I'm I'm sorry, Mary, but the answer has already been staged to be revealed at the next Ooh. the next NHRL event. <laughs> Cruel. I, I bought a shirt to answer her question. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. So you know, I I just I don't want to ruin that moment. Mary, don't ruin his reveal. She didn't know. Don't don't shame her. It's a valid question. <laughs> when was the last time you had team Cheerios? I looked it up and they seem to be from 1998. Do you only love things that are extinct? That's um <laughs> that's an amazing question. Um it's got to be they must have come out since then. Um 
I don't know. I mean, I want to say college, but that doesn't mean that I didn't have. Oh, here you go. No limited edition team Cheerios 2021. Oh, yeah. Um, it's it's they're not an, uh, they're not a year round kind of thing. They come out for. Um, uh, they come out ceremoniously, um, <laughs> you know, on occasion. <laughs> yeah. So, All right. Um, well, although I- I, I'm looking here, though, the team Cheerios that came out in 2021 were not the ones I had. The team Cheerios in 2021 were the Frosted Berry Edition. Huh. And that, I don't think that would be my jam. That's basically just Fruit Loops without the the um, the name brand. Yeah, also I'm not I'm not a huge fan of Fruit Loops. I'm just gonna put it out there. That's fair. I I think they make great children's necklaces. Oh, Fruit Loops. I mean, Team Cheerios. That's just a waste. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, all right. Well, when we need something to do with a. Uh our niece and others niece and others we'll uh, we'll keep that in mind um okay we have come to the final question if one were to get jackson an elephant slash mammoth costume for next year what size does he wear asking for reasons i know he <laughs> isn't your dog but i imagine you have a background in canine fashion somehow uh, you know i <laughs> have sewed dog costumes before i'll put it that way um i i would say he's a solid large he's not an extra large by any means and he's too large to be a medium so i'd I'd say a solid large a solid large well thank you ricky so much for chatting with us you're always a blast and uh man it's just great to chat with you so thank you again for your time during this very busy season uh, and we can't wait to see Mammoth in the Battle Box again soon. Thanks. Yeah, it'll be some fun fights coming up. After the break, we'll return with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. Welcome back from the break. Time for Robots Around the World. This week, we're heading to the near future, where researchers are teaching a robot to paint using artificial intelligence. The robot, named Frida, after the late human artist Frida Kahlo, invites people to describe what they want painted, interpret that request using AI, and then physically paint on a canvas. The robot displays its work online under the Frida Robot handle on Twitter. In a press release, the robot's creator says, quote, There's this one painting of a frog ballerina that I think turned out really nicely. It is really silly and fun, and I think the surprise of what Frida generated based on my input was really fun to see. This is exactly what Frida Kahlo envisioned her name uh, being used for one day in the future. A lovely, uh, inspiring person and artist. Uh, now her name is being used for an AI taking away, uh, you know, artist, uh, gigs for actual other humans. I was, I was taking a look through my LinkedIn and I was surprised to see like how many, uh, former, uh, colleagues I have and current colleagues that in addition to like 
you know, their their day job also like just have an AI company where they're huh. where they're figuring out how to automate someone's job. And I just like it was kind of heartbreaking, like to to kind of thumb through some of the profiles. And it's just like, oh, yeah, hey, like we uh, we're going to like replace, you know, that guy that's that says, I hope you're having a good day at Sam's <laughs> Club. It's like, well, why? Why would you replace Neil? Like, he's a nice guy. That $8 an hour really adds up. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I know. He, he, he buys Lunchables and juice yeah. boxes with it. So he has something to look forward to tomorrow. Yeah, this is... It's bleak. It's, it's bleak, bleak, you guys. Well, it's... I mean, we've already been, like, you know... Probably like zapping elephants to teach them how to paint for like 30 years now. So we might as if they can like make a robot elephant. <laughs> so like we don't have to probably torture elephants to get them to paint for tourists. Like, okay, that's a step in the right direction. But what, what's going to happen eventually is like, is this going to be out on a street somewhere and someone can walk up to it and be like, you know, I want you to paint me a picture of, you know, my mother-in-law, uh, that going skydiving without a parachute. <laughs> Jeez. I don't know. After reading that whole, what was it? The New York times article about the uh, journalist who uh, spent a couple hours talking to the uh, Bing AI. Um, man, I'm, uh, I'm not hopeful for the future of mankind. This is the logical end game for late stage capitalism, where artificial intelligence eventually automates every single job. And uh, we have an owner class that lives underground. And, uh, you know, uh, the 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 uh, serfs at the top, all of us, you know, us former white collar office workers are uh, just, I guess, farming for <laughs> potatoes or something, you know, and uh clubbing one another to death with rocks. Uh, it's, it's awful. And, uh, you know, like Jeff Bezos or the, the robot version of Jeff, Jeff Bezos that lives underground, you know, with his uh, transferred um, memory and thoughts and all of that, uh, you know, just gets to add zeros, just more zeros to uh, some digital ledger, you know, run by a bank that's probably owned by Amazon because uh, that's the nature of mega conglomerations. So uh, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Frida. This is great. This is just <laughs> yet another nail in the coffin for uh, common people everywhere. So I guess. Can Frida paint a painting of that? Uh, <laughs> I to see it. You know, it's so funny. If we just go back in the way back machine and, I, and we don't even need to take it that many stops. Let's go back eight, 10 years ago when we would talk about AI, maybe you know, our, our, our knowledge of it is based on uh, movies that maybe came out in the eighties, nineties and early two thousands. Uh, you know, Will Smith robots, uh, you know, uh, the matrix, that kind of, that kind of jazz. We're like, okay, when AI comes, uh, into our, uh, into our existence, we're, and, and it, and it is introduced into society. It's going to replace, certain jobs first the easier jobs right it's going to replace uh you know the um uh, the, uh like the guy at a, at a toll booth or it's going to replace uh the the person who uh, serves your burgers and whatnot uh but we are uh we are absolutely unqualified all of us to to really know where it's going to kind of penetrate and come in and take over first 
And I think just like looking at the landscape, even just in the last year, here I am, I'm a creative. I've worked in design for, you know, most of my adult life. And there is not a single capacity that I've worked in the last 15 or 20 years where there is not several AI startup companies figuring out how to automate like a creative role. So whether it's UX design, uh, making uh, uh, video content, whether it's uh, doing voiceover work or uh, even editing photos, it's every single one of these roles that I've had now has multiple AI venture startups to replace the people that are doing that. And you know what? It's like the truck driver job is still safe because Tesla can't figure out how to get a truck to run down the road without driving over 50 people (laughs) or going off a cliff. Because like, you know what? Those jobs that are hard, the jobs that, you know, require uh, attention and focus from a human being, there's a lot more kind of that, that nuance like that that's attributed to it. A truck driver is responsible not just for hauling stuff, but making sure that nobody dies because he's hauling stuff. Uh, You know, the person who's making a burger is responsible for making a burger, but making sure that also they don't serve you a bun filled with razor blades. So it's like, you know, those jobs are actually harder to replace. And, um, you know, it's it's amazing that what's going to happen is the very first attack that's going to happen on the workforce is going to be those kind of cushy white collar jobs. Um, if you're in middle management or if you're a creative or if, uh, you know, Luke, you have experience in technical writing. There's bots that not only can do the technical writing now, but can even do dramatization readings of it with real human emotion. And it's very hard to tell if it's real or if it's not real. Uh, and, you know, what is going to happen? Are we all just going to get, you know, put into roles where, you know, okay, I, I, I guess I could try to grow corn. I have half an acre. I don't know if I'm really going to be able to feed a lot of people, but <laughs> we got to, we've got to figure out what's going to, what's going to happen here. All right. So the really interesting thing is, uh, the CEO of OpenAI, uh, you know, the makers of chat GPT, Sam Altman, you know, he's been famous for running universal basic income, um, projects in the past like he ran small pilot projects in the bay area where you just give everybody in the pilot project 500 bucks a month and at the time you know this is like 10 years ago he was saying artificial intelligence will make universal basic income a necessity uh, because we are going to automate so many jobs that there will not be any consumers left because no one will be making money at their job to buy any of the products that the artificial intelligence is making Um, like he envisioned this future. And at the time, I mean, he sounded nuts, right? Where um, every single thing that you touch and buy is being handled by robots, being handled by, by artificial intelligence. And just through the nature of capitalism, you know, like we need to expand the economy every single year until infinity. And artificial intelligence just, just accelerates all of that, you know? Um, I was having a conversation with Jackie this week about ChatGPT and um, this Bing chat. Um, And then Google's new AI went barred. And um, I was saying, you know, like the best thing about this is like in the future, I could search for a recipe and the AI will just give me the recipe where I don't have to read, you know, this blogger's whole backstory about how, you know, her mother-in-law, you know, goes to Vermont every single year. You know what I mean? Like, and you've got to wade through 83 
uh, ads, you know, to get to the recipe itself. But then I was thinking, you know, like that's going to happen to the entire internet. And there are millions of people right now who make small amounts of money, you know, by, by creating content on the internet. And AI is just going to create that content at scale by basically stealing the ideas of people who were compensated in the past for them. You know, like there's a hundred thousand chocolate chip cookie recipes on the internet. And ChatGPT is going to give you the best one because that's, you know, determined by artificial intelligence with no ads. And, you know, there's going to be 100,000 cookie makers who are going to be uh, not making money that day. And without universal basic income, you know, like the cookie makers are going to be, you know, burning down all the buildings in the, you know, like uh, in America, you know. (laughs) Um, And it's just like so freaking dark and there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, My job is being automated actively this year. And, um, you know, like, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do next. So like that sucks. So I guess if I was a painter, uh, maybe I would not be super excited about Frida, you know, uh, being able to create AI generated physical paintings. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, I've got to, I've got to read up on potatoes, Chris, you know, (laughs) the real money's in potatoes. I think about, um, in the Star Trek universe in the future, you know, they can, they can make anything you want in a replicator, but restaurants still exist uh-huh. because people want that like home cooked, homegrown food feel and taste that replicators can't quite do. Um, do you think that there will be some version of that going forward? Like there will be like artisan, like, oh yes, this painting in my house was actually painted by a human. Isn't that incredible? Like it becomes kind of a, a an artist thing. Kyle, you sweet summer child. That was based in the heady days of the mid-90s back when the economy was expanding like crazy. Okay. True. All right. You know what? You you want to know what's gonna happen? All right. You want to know what, what it took to get there? World War Three, where people were wearing machine guns as hands. Okay, Kyle. Yes, All right. That is true. Uh yeah. <laughs> That's how they smashed capitalism uh back at you know Starfleet. Okay. Um it, the 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 uh, logical kind of end game to this is um yeah i'm going to get a uh three star michelin meal here for 6 dollars <laughs> you know because uh, i'm going to get it delivered by robot made by robots you know there's going to be these mobile roaming kitchens so like uh you know the food is being uh created outside of my hovel okay and then sent up my driveway and I'm paying for it with universal basic income credits from Sam Altman. Okay, not even currency. It's going to be some kind of weird Bitcoin, bro. All right, like it's going to be horrible. <laughs> okay. Yep. I'm not feeling great. <laughs> <laughs> but it'll be convenient, guys. It'll be convenient. <laughs> Can you imagine if you could order like world class? I'm talking about like the very best dumplings on the planet made by a robot. And and there there's just little dumpling robots that are just roaming your your city 24 hours a day, powered by the sun. You know what I mean? Like uh putting all of the dumpling makers out of out of business. It's gonna be wonderful and awful. <laughs> I'm thinking back to that recipe thing. Isn't there like some modicum of joy that we as humans get from like researching and trying to find what looks best to us? Like I'm a I'm a cereal recipe uh, 
comparer. I don't know. Like I like looking at different recipes and trying to think like, Oh, what do I, what looks like it's the best one to me? Uh, you know, kind of comparing the ingredients and the measurements and like, there's some amount of joy in that. And then when you cook it, you feel better because like, you know, you, you feel like you picked right. You picked the right recipe. I don't want some AI just telling me the right answer to everything all the time. Sometimes you gotta try have trial and error. And I'm really upset. I'm really upset. Yeah, well, I hate this. It's you know the thing about the 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 AI models too is they, you know they they learn from like human behavior. So you know, what's going to happen is we're, we're, we're a very antagonistic species. So as soon as like, it looks like the robots are coming for our cookie recipes, we're just going to flood the internet with like racist cookie recipes and like, like psychotic, uh, you know, uh, ways to cook beef Wellington. (laughs) And so like when they start making like recommendations, like, you know, someone's going to be like, ah, honey, these, 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 these cookies are they're anti-Semitic. <laughs> I mean, they're they're good, but my goodness, Barbara, what the, what's going on with you? This frog ballerina deep fake is uh, you know telling me to put a lot of salt into this recipe. <laughs> oh god. So that's that's the end game, folks. We'll uh, we're just gonna mess with AI for ten years until it it finally realizes that we're not worth having around anymore, and uh, that will be for, that will be it for us today and the rest of eternity. <laughs> yeah. We want to thank Nicole for editing this week's episode. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Nicole. Oh, this was a doozy. Thanks, yeah. Nicole. We don't normally end with a 20, 30 minute rant, but sometimes it's necessary. <laughs> They're coming for our germs. <laughs> germs. Uh, we'll be back in your feed next week, unless uh, you know NHL releases a new AI podcast. Uh, <laughs> you know, and we're way funnier, and you know my voice doesn't squeak as much. But uh, we'll we'll see you then, folks, and we'll be back with another mystery guest. We'll see you then. Bye. 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 B